In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created. Let us pray, O God, who does enlighten the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit. Granted by the gift of the same Spirit, we be always truly wise, and ever rejoice in his consolation through the same Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. We adore thee, O Christ, and we praise thee. Lord Jesus crucified. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Well, my dear brethren, we will continue now this evening to consider the other words which our Lord spoke on the cross. Last night we only had time to, to discuss one of them because we wanted to see, first and foremost, the whole necessity of carrying our cross and of doing the holy will of God rather than our own to finding our fulfilment even in carrying the cross after our blessed Lord. And so last night we spoke about the first words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And we saw how the, hereby our blessed Lord shows the fundamental dispositions which he had. He'd come in the world to save us through forgiving us and that, that we consequently must also have in order to give our hearts and souls, the inner peace which he had, and also to see that even when we suffer injustice, that although the thing in itself is wrong and contrary to God's will, whatever evil may befall us, that God can and does turn to good a, uh, the negative aspects of our life. And that our Lord saves the world through suffering and injustice and those who those who inflicted the injustice were actually in a certain sense the instruments of God so we've got to rise up and try to see in all of the difficulties and the problems of our life the loving hand of God likewise so now we move on Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they that passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Ve, thou who destroyest the temple of God, and in three days buildest it up again, save thy own self. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. And like manner also, the chief priests with the scribes and the ancients mocking said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And the self-same thing, the thieves also, 
that were crucified with him reproached him with. Now, surely this is a, a dreadful and a horrible situation. The self-same things, the thieves who were crucified with him reproached him, likewise, with the rest of the crowd. There's something, is there not, diabolical about that. Surely the natural disposition of man is to feel sympathy and a solidarity with others who suffer the same difficulty or carry the same cross. And yet here, even they who were condemned themselves enter into our Lord's reproaches. Isn't it a curious thing? You'd have thought that the beautiful words of our blessed Lord, that his prayer, even if they weren't particularly impressed by the prayer, but the disposition of love and forgiveness would have touched somebody's heart, not least those who were actually suffering with him likewise. But no, our Lord suffers the abuse even of those who suffer the same fate. And one of the robbers who were hanging blasphemed him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. What a blasphemy. This man wants to be saved. He doesn't think he's really going to be saved, of course. He's mocking our blessed Lord likewise. But he's saying, forget all the illusions. If you can save us, save us. And why does he want to be saved? He wants to be saved because his heart is full of anger, revulsion, refusal to accept the punishment which has been given to him. He wishes, if it were possible, to be released from the cross and to go on leading his previous life, to go on leading his previous evil life. He has no concern for anything greater or better than himself. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Neither dost thou fear God, seeing that thou art under the same condemnation. For we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done no evil. And he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou shalt come into thy kingdom. Finally, somebody's heart was touched. The heart of this thief, this good thief, was touched by grace. At the last moments, God had given him grace to see beyond appearances, to see beyond the helplessness of our blessed Lord, and to recognize in him something more than purely human, but something messianic and divine. And not only that, that in itself is a great and a wonderful grace, but it also gave him, because he recognized Christ and he saw the goodness in Christ, he therefore saw himself likewise as he really was. And therefore he confesses his own sin, 
Unlike the other man who's full of spite and rebellion, on the contrary, his words are words of resignation and of acceptance. Dost thou not fear God, considering that we are under the same condemnation? But not only are we brothers in suffering, but this man has done no evil, whereas we deserve all that we are getting. We deserve all that we are getting. He willingly acknowledges his guilt and willingly accepts the punishment. We mustn't imagine that, he, uh, that these two men were, when they say, they say they're robbers, that they were just kind of petty thieves or something like that. Not a bit of it. These were hardened criminals and they were probably uh, insurrectionists uh, just like Barabbas had been. Remember, Barabbas was described as a robber who had committed the uh, murder and sedition in the city. It's funny that they put robbery as being more, um, more important than murder. I think the reason for that is that robbers, of course, uh, as such, are representatives of the enemies of the entire social order. And as our Lord, of course, was mockingly called the King of the Jews... And as the Jews were always revolting and rising up against the Romans in order to establish their independence, that's what Barabbas had been doing, they no doubt chose, in mockery again of our blessed Lord, that he should be crucified between these two thieves, just like a king on his throne is surrounded by his ministers and his courtiers. So that in mockery of our blessed Lord, he put, they put these evil men with them. Remember in another place it says, and so that the scripture was fulfilled, that he was reputed with the wicked. These weren't men who were just kind of uh, lovable, sort of petty thieves. They were hard criminals. And that's what's all the more remarkable, that this man was touched by the grace of God and becomes, in fact, the only person on Calvary to say a word in favor of our blessed Lord. That's an astonishing thing in itself. That this man who previously was in the depths of sin is touched by God to recognize him, to recognize himself, to recognize his own guilt, to formulate it. Well, you could say he had nothing to lose now that he was on the point of death himself. But nevertheless, it took an enormous courage for him to do that. Astonishing. And therefore, because he accepts the cross, he receives the crown. And Jesus said to him, Amen, I say to you, this day thou shalt be with me in paradise. These are astonishing words, aren't they? This man, this evil man, is the only man in history who was canonized before his death. This day you shall be with me in paradise. Of course, paradise in this case doesn't mean heaven, it means, it means uh, limbo. But limbo become paradise because of God's presence, of the presence of our blessed Lord. And it's an amazing and a wonderful thing to think that our Lord entered into limbo in the presence of, in the company of, this man who was, to all intents and purposes, previously a very evil man, a repentant sinner. And a wonderful first fruits, if you like, of the passion. 
Beautiful first fruits of what Almighty God wills to do to us and to do for us. So these beautiful words we've got to be able to likewise um, apply to ourselves. We were saying yesterday about our Lord saying, Father, forgive them for they know what, not what they do. And if we can, although we penetrated into the depths of that, and we've seen how necessary it is for us to have dispositions of forgiveness and love towards all, we mustn't either, however, be misled into a sentimentality which assumes or wishes that no evil should ever be punished. That's a kind of modern mentality, isn't it? When criminals are let off scot-free and nobody's got any sympathy for the victim. If you look at the words of our blessed Lord, the first words of our Lord, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, you could be tempted into thinking that, that the evil, the evil should not be punished. That's not exactly what our Lord is saying. When our Lord speaks these words... He didn't, at the same time, abolish hell, for example. When he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, he didn't mean to say nobody will ever be sent to hell or that nobody will ever be punished for their sins. He was demonstrating the dispositions which we, the injured party, must always have towards these people, the evildoers. But it's still up to the evildoers to accept that mercy and to accept that pardon. And here you have the demonstration with these two robbers, or these two murderers, of one who accepted the pardon and entered into paradise, and his sufferings became for him the means of expiating all of his crimes, so that his crucifixion, his crucifixion, became for him likewise the means of his salvation. Because having now, as we said also, having united himself to Christ and with Christ, his sufferings become part of Christ's sufferings. And therefore his crucifixion on his cross in union with Christ was the means of his glory and salvation. Whereas the other one who rejected the cross, who wished to be freed from the cross, who did not recognize his sin, is a symbol of the, unpe- the, 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 the irrepentant and, if you want to push it even further, of the damned. Because these three crosses, the cross of our Lord and the crosses of the two thieves, they really they, they represent three deaths. There's only three states in which we can die. We can either die like our Lord, totally and completely innocent of any crime, well, if you're in that category, congratulations. <laughs> then there's only other two possibilities. We either die repentant sinners, or we die without repentance. There's no, there's no other alternatives. And therefore we ourselves have got to become like that good, we call him now the good thief, because at the very end he turned out well. At the very end he turned out well. There's another thing that we mustn't allow ourselves to be misled by. We can be misled that, that criminals are not to be punished. Here is a perfect example, a perfect example, of the necessity of punishing crime, of the necessity even, I would 
I would even presume to say, of capital punishment. It's, and uh, that's not a very modern thing to say too either. It, uh, it's very hard, isn't it? But it's what God says. If man's blood be shed, his blood shall be by man shall his blood be shed because man was made in the image of God and capital punishment is really in fact an act of mercy an act whereby the criminal is forced is made to concentrate on the enormity of the crime that he has committed and given a short time to make up his mind to convert and to expiate his crime and so many criminals have gone to their deaths at peace with God, who otherwise would not do. And I don't hesitate to say for a moment that all the criminals now, who are not punished as they should be punished, lose the chance, an enormous chance, of being reconciled to God, because their very crimes are played down to them. So what hope is there for their repentance? But the ultimate punishment, freely accepted, is the sure means into eternity, no matter what crime we've committed, really. That's why, that's why the old justice system really was in conformity with, with, with what God wills, no matter what, what crime we've committed. If we accept the greatest punishment, give everything that we can in expiation for that crime, which is our life, then we're bound, we're bound to be saved. See how the, whole, how the supernatural view of things is totally different from the sentimental natural view. So we've got to see these two incidents together. Because if we only look at one aspect of them, we get a false picture. The words that our Lord first spoke and the words that he spoke secondarily. And another thing which we mustn't either be misled into thinking is that since the good thief died on the cross, died at the moment of his death, that we can kind of put off our own conversion until the last minute and hope that like him, you know, that we'll be saved. We can live a life of evil, a life of wickedness, and at the very end, we might enter into paradise. The priest will come along at our last gasp, give us extreme unction, give us the, um, the absolution of the dying, and whoo, off we go to heaven after having a real... Wicked old time here on earth. That is not a conclusion to be drawn, because if we draw that conclusion, it's a false conclusion. Note, please note, that contrary again to appearances, that the good thief acted immediately, immediately that God gave him grace. He did not delay. He did not delay until he was dying. He apparently didn't receive the grace until he was dying. But when he did receive the grace, he acted upon it immediately. So he rather is the example of those who act and do not delay, because his conversion is startling in a very, very short space of time, but who do not delay to cooperate with God's grace. The person who is the example of who does want to delay God's grace is the bad thief. It's the bad thief who says, get me down off this cross so that I can go on living a life of evil and I'll maybe think about conversion or forgiving people later. No, we must act when God gives us the power 
to act. Now, there stood by the cross of Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary of Cleophas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing whom he loved, he saith to his mother, Woman, behold thy son. After that he saith to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own. Note how in the first two words our Lord has been addressing his enemies. Father, forgive them. And his erstwhile enemy, the good thief on the cross. Now he turns his attention to his friends, to the little group of people who are standing at the foot of the cross, our Blessed Lady, St. John, and the holy women. Now, let's consider for a moment this picture. That the holy women, and the blessed lady particularly, stood at the foot of the cross. It's already an astonishing thing that Our Lady should have been standing at the foot of the cross in any event. Because it would have been, I think, fairly inappropriate for mothers to attend the crucifixions of their sons. It's a horrible thing for a mother to see her son being executed in any circumstance, but particularly in the circumstances of the crucifixion, which was full of the most atrocious agonies, torment, and humiliations imaginable. So we would have imagined that anybody would have wanted to spare any mother this torment. But no, Our Lady is there, and she's willingly there, and she's standing at the foot of the cross, or she's standing at the foot of the cross. Remember, all the words which we are told in the, in the Holy Gospels are full of meaning. I mean, she's standing. She's not swooning or on the point of fainting or ready to collapse. Sometimes on the stations of the cross, it shows pictures of Our Lady being held up or swooning or all that kind of thing. That was, they, they, such pictures are inaccurate. Our Lady of course, was suffering the most profound, uh, sensible grief imaginable. But her will, of course, was entirely attached to the will of God. And this she knew from the very beginning, that she was to be the mm, companion of our blessed Lord in every aspect of his life and that that life would be filled with sorrows as it was filled with sorrows the very, from the very, very beginning of the circumstances, the very circumstances of our Lord's birth the prophecy which she received from Simeon that a sword would pierce her heart she knew that her son was to be the sacrifice for the salvation of the world. She didn't know all the details of it. She didn't know exactly how it was all going to unfold. She had to live in faith. But she lived in perfect faith and trust and confidence. And it's that which made her and gave her 
the supernatural strength to stand there at the foot of the cross, not just be present at the foot of the cross, but actually there in union with her divine son. And there is nothing really, is there? There's nothing really worse than to witness the misfortunes of those whom we love. And particularly for parents, and especially for mothers, to witness the sufferings of their children. And of course, to mothers, uh, uh, their sons particularly are always their children, even when they've grown up to maturity. To witness this and to be helpless to do anything about it. There's something doubly agonizing about it. And at the same time, as we consider that aspect from Our Lady's point of view, it's the same from Our Lord's point of view. Surely Our Lord's agony was multiplied by seeing Our Blessed Lady at the foot of the cross. From a human point of view, it would have been a mercy to him if she had not been there because she would not have witnessed his agony. There's almost nothing worse that you can do is to execute somebody and to execute them in terrible torments. It's hard to find anything worse than the crucifixion that you can make anybody undergo. But yet occasionally understand that in the classical times, in Roman times, that in, in order to increase the agony of certain people who were to be uh, punished, that their parents would be forced to attend the execution so that the agony of the execution would be increased twofold. That the parents would have to witness the death of their son and their son would have to be conscious of that witness by their parents. Just sheer cruelty. I think there's a, there's a story told of the Emperor Caligula, who was, of course, mad and, uh, and sadistic. And he had somebody put to death and called for the father to come and watch the spectacle. But the father sent a, a respectful letter back to the emperor saying that it was impossible because he was too ill and too old and he was bedridden. So the emperor very graciously sent a carriage so that the father could be put into it and brought to the place of execution. Such tremendous and awful cruelty, which knows no bounds in the imagination of mankind. To be helpless, and that's what we've got to consider here, the helplessness of our Blessed Lady. You see, in all the, in all the other things which went before, when our Lord was born in the stable of Bethlehem, it was all very horrible, it was all very sad, it was all very tragic, this baby being born in this abject poverty and so on, but at least she was able to do something for him. She was able to, to, to swaddle him in the, in, the, in, in, the, in the swathing bands, she was able to suckle him, she was able to try to keep him warm, she was able to alleviate his sufferings. But in this case, she was able to do absolutely nothing. And she is, and he is, unable to do anything whatsoever either to alleviate her suffering. And they both accept, and this is the point, they both accept each other's suffering as part of God's great and divine plan.
That the love that they have for each other is completely selfless. They are both united together. That's why our Blessed Lady is called the Corredemptrix, or Our Lady of Compassion. That she suffered the passion with Christ, in Christ. That everything that she suffered, he suffered. Everything that he suffered, she suffered likewise in her soul. And this is an example of, of suffering that we have all got to, we've all got to, we've all got to have in our life. We've got to have a spirit of detachment. A spirit whereby we seek to be detached even from the things that we love and even from the people that we love. Now, it's hard to be detached from anything. It's very hard to be detached from our worldly goods. Sometimes we sometimes we see that uh, we, we, we recognize that we have got to we've got to be detached from the the things which we own or that we, we possess or the qualities that we have but there seems to be a kind of a a kind of a, a contradiction in being detached from the people that we love because it's the very notion of people that we love are people that we want to have with us constantly or if not constantly, at least all the time. And it's very hard to be detached from them. And yet, duty, a higher duty, something greater than our love for them, inevitably intervenes in life, and therefore we've got to give them up to that greater good. Our Lord is nailed to that cross. His feet and his hands are nailed to it. Nailed to duty. Nailed to the, nailed to the will of God. And therefore he's not able to do what he might like to do, step down from the cross and take Our Lady in, her, in his arms and embrace her and console her. How often does that happen in our lives? Because he's got to do something greater than that. He's got to accomplish the will of his Father. And that demands, often in our lives, renouncement. Not rejection, but detachment and renouncement sometimes of things which we, things which we love. And even, there's something even more profound than that, the lesson of Our Lady and Our Blessed Lord together on the cross, there's something even more profound than that, which is that we must have that spirit of detachment really always. Look at, for example, the closest attachments and loves that there are. The husband is very jealous of his wife. He doesn't like any other man speaking to her. Why? Because he loves her so much. So he can't bear that any other man should look at her or she have any, 
any contact at all with any other man. Now, that excessive, obsessive love, because it is a love, we can't deny it, of course is exceedingly damaging. It stunts and smothers the love which was already there. It actually destroys love. Because this man cannot be sufficiently detached, because he doesn't allow his wife to come to her own, own personal fulfillment and maturity, the love dies. And it dies because he is not detached in the way that he should be. And if he did become more detached, funnily enough, his, life would, his wife would love him all the more. And then, of course, is the example of parents and children. It's of the very, the very essence of being a parent that we are actually, every day from the moment our child is born, that we must love them with such an intensity of love that we are day after day preparing them for the day when they'll be able to stand on their own two feet and leave us. It's a great paradox. And if we don't want to do that, if we love our children so much that we want them to remain babies forever and we organize life so that we can, as far as possible, keep them babies for at least as long as is possible for to do and make them dependent on us and smother them. Mother love, smother love. That's unkind because it's, it's not just mothers who smother other people by love. Then we, in fact, are totally failing in our duty. And we are failing in demonstrating the correct parental love that we should have towards them. Because we are not detached from them in the sense that we should be. That they don't belong to us. They belong to God. All human relationships are, are like that. All disordered human relationships are like that. Not that the relationship in itself is disordered. There's nothing disordered about being a parent or a, and a child or a husband and, a, and a, a wife. On the contrary, on the contrary. But we can make the thing disordered by our own exaggerations. In one direction or the other. And see how our Lord and Our Lady standing at the foot of the cross are a wonderful demonstration of how our loves should be. Nobody on this earth ever loved each other greater than these two loved each other. And yet, they had that spirit of detachment from each other so that the ultimate good should be accomplished. That's a an enormous, a fascinating, a fascinating lesson for, for, for us. And so our Lord looks, he can't do anything else but look, he can't, he, uh, he can't, he, he can't, he can't, he can speak, fortunately he's able to speak. An amazing thing he was able to speak also, he, um, because it was not uncommon at crucifixions for the people who were to be uh, 
the, the people who were to be executed have their tongues cut out. Too. That was another thing which happened because, of course, at a certain stage when they reached a paroxysm of agony and so on, they would shout out blasphemies against gods, against the emperor, against the, the public authorities. And so in order to, to save the honor of the, um, of the justice system and so on, they would have their tongues cut out. So at least in this case, the, the thieves and our Lord were shown some degree of mercy and that they were, allowed to, they were allowed to keep their tongues. And so our Lord looks, our Lord looks at our blessed Lord, uh, sorry, our Lord looks at Our Lady and at St. John. Now they stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister Mary of Cleophas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing whom he loved, he said to his mother, Woman, behold thy son. After that he saith to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own. Now these are amazing words, really, aren't they? That our Lord looks at our lady and says, in a certain sense, you've got another son. It's at this moment that Our Lady becomes really and truly the Queen of Martyrs. She is forced, she's not forced, she accepts to take somebody inferior to her son. It's, you can't exchange a son for another. It's impossible. Even if, even if you're given another, another young man who, from every point of view, is much more excellent than your own son, the fact is that he will never really be your son, no matter how marvelous he may be. He can never be your son. Our Lady has now got to completely give up her son to his Heavenly Father and take another son. St. John. St. John, who, in spite of all his excellent qualities, of course, is nothing like her own son. Now, how do, we, how do we see this? Is it just that our Lord is making sure that Our Lady will be looked after when he dies, since he was an only child? Yes. But more than that, when our Lord looks at Our Lady and looks at St. John, he sees more than they are. He sees in Our Lady the woman. Notice what he says to her. It's another, another sword, if you like. He doesn't call her mother. These are the last words that he'll ever speak to her. What would we think if we were at the deathbed of our child who didn't give us our title, mother or father? He says to her, Woman, woman, behold thy son. This title is an official title. In fact, by using these words, our Lord is now speaking to Our Lady not so much as, his, a, uh, as her uh, son, 
but rather as her God. Notice that at the beginning of our Lord's public life, he says to Our Lady at the marriage feast of Cana, woman. When she asks him to change water into wine, he says, woman, what is this to me or to thee? And his very last words at the end of his public life as he's dying on the cross, he says, woman, behold thy son. And by that, he gives her her title as the mother of all the saved, of all the living. And this title, of course, brings us very back to the very dawn of history, to the Garden of Eden. And we said, as we say, that the whole purpose of the cross is to put right the fall which took place in Eden. And in Eden, the mother of all the living, according to nature, Eve is taken from the side of Adam. And when God gives Eve to Adam, we are told that he called her woman because she was taken from man. She is the first woman. She is to be called Eve, the mother of all the living. And after they fell, if you remember, that God promised that ultimately there would be a redeemer who would save the world from this sin and all the subsequent sins. And God said to Satan, I shall put enmities between thee and the woman, the woman, between thy seed and her seed. She shall crush thy head and thou shalt lie in wait for her heel. That our Lord that God, after the fall of the first mother of the living, announces that it will be another mother of the living. And so, when our Lord comes in to, to begin his public life, to transform the world, to transform our natural life, the water of Cana, into the supernatural life of the wine of Cana, he addresses Our Lady as woman. She's now actually assuming her role, her historic role, as the mother of all the saved, of all the living. And so now on the cross, he addresses her as woman. Now she really and truly becomes the mother of all the living. And all of the living are represented by St. John. St. John, who is, the, alas, the only representative of our Lord's disciples, the only one of the apostles, they, through whom, the life of God, the living waters of grace are to be given to mankind, are through the apostles. And Our Lady then becomes the mother, truly the mother of the apostles, the mother of the church, the co-redemptrix of mankind. Aren't these words absolutely magnificent in their sublimity? And so we now have those of us who are hopefully in a state of grace, those of us who are hopefully united to God, we now have this true relationship with our Blessed Lady. She really and truly is our mother. In the same way as our natural mother <coughs> gave us the life of the body, so does our Blessed Lady give us the supernatural life of the soul. 
We've got a special relationship to her. And therefore, we must become really and truly her children. And that's what we're told. From that hour, the disciple took her to his own, took her to his own home, took her to his own place. We've got to take Our Lady to our own place, to our own soul, make her reside here in our hearts. It's astonishing the heights to which Almighty God has raised the fallen human race to a state which is even higher than the angels. Our Lady is not the mother of the angels. She's given the title of the Queen of the Angels. The Queen of the Angels may be a very glorious title. It is a very glorious title. But there's no, there's no intimate relationship between a sovereign and her subjects such as there is between a mother and her child. So again, we can see how these simple words which are spoken by our blessed Lord have got a very profound significance for us likewise now in our spiritual life. And it was almost the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Now, it's necessary to understand that the sixth hour, according to the calculations at the time of our blessed Lord, was actually 12 o'clock midday because the Romans calculated the day to be beginning at six o'clock in the morning, which was the first hour, and coming to its conclusion at six o'clock in the evening, the twelfth hour. So the sixth hour is midday. So when the sun is at its height, normally the sun should be at its height, there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour, until three o'clock in the afternoon. And now there is silence, now there is darkness. Now this darkness and this silence quietens down the people who are mocking and jeering at our blessed Lord. They begin to be filled with awe and fear at the strange things which are happening in nature. The world becomes dark just as it was when our Lord first came into the world. Our Lord who is the light of the world came into the world of darkness that might be enlightened. And our Lord who is now going to give up his life and rise again gloriously from the dead on the bright, in the bright sunshine of Easter Sunday is now Closing in, if you like, on himself. Henceforth now, he will not speak to anybody else. He will have no more conversations with anybody else. The words which he has addressed to those around him now have been, as individuals, have now been spoken. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them that stood there and heard said, This man calleth for Elias. Now, the reason that uh, the evangelist quotes the original language that our Lord spoke, Eli, Eli, Lamech, Sabachthani, is in order to help us to understand why it was said that he was calling for Elias, because uh, the similarity of the words, which we wouldn't understand unless these words had been quoted to us in their original context. 
And so we see how the interpretation, the evil interpretation, which was put on these words, was that our Lord was calling for Elias, and we'll consider that just in a moment. But see how now the world has become dark, our Lord has become silent, his agony has increased over these three hours, three hours of excruciating pain and agony. And now he, having taken on all the, nearly all the physical sufferings it's imaginable to take, takes upon himself the suffering of the soul. I think as we tried to say that our Lord has taken upon himself every conceivable human suffering so that there is no suffering which we can ever experience which has not already been suffered by our blessed Lord. So that again we've got some indication, some notion of the depths and the profundity of his love for us. And so he now cries out with a loud voice even my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, these are very strange words, aren't they? We are astonished that our Lord could even have spoken such words. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And, of course, there's certain, certain people who refuse to accept the truth of Christianity often quote these words as being proof that our Lord was not God at all. Because if he was God, why would he be crying or, or, or complaining to God for having abandoned him? These are profound words which we must consider. And we cannot understand these words unless we understand a minimum basic, basic theology, which is, of course, the, the doctrine of the hypostatic union, which is that in Jesus there is one person, only one person, but there are two natures, the nature of God and the nature of man. In the nature of God, our blessed Lord is always totally happy. He cannot suffer pain. He cannot suffer sorrow or anything of the like. He is in a state of eternal felicity. He could not suffer any pain. That's why in order to give us the example of the necessity of we suffering pain and carrying our cross, it was necessary for him, if he was to give the lesson, to become a human being like us. And this he took upon himself to the fool. And it's in his human nature, and this is a great mystery, of course, for us, but in this human nature, that he suffered in body, understandably, obviously, by being nailed to the cross and all the other torments of the cross, but also in soul, also in his human soul. And therefore he felt as if he had been abandoned by his heavenly Father. Or rather more accurately, we can say that he feels as if he has lost consciousness, at least lost consciousness, of the presence of his heavenly Father. And why does our Lord take this suffering upon himself? This is the utter depth of suffering. He takes really upon himself what is the suffering of the damned. Our Lord has taken upon himself every consequence of sin except sin itself. And the, consequence, the, 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 the punishment of the damned 
in hell is not so much that they are going to be burned by hellfire, we'll speak about that later, but that they have lost the presence of God forever. That they have been, so to speak, abandoned by God with no hope of recourse. Now, because, of course, we are so materialistic and sensual, we think about the worst thing in hell being, being burned. And we think that we might be able to put up with the, might be, be put up with the absence of God because we can say, well, God's, I can't see God here, so if I don't see him there, it's not going to make much difference. No, no. Here we cannot see God. That is true. He's not visible to us. But he's constantly present with us and in us and near us and supporting us. But in hell, there will be no such support. And this is an amazing thing and an amazing warning that our Lord suffers the, the, the greatest penalty of sin which is possible to suffer, which is the equivalent of the pain of the damned. There's almost no, there is no limit, in other words, to the suffering which our Lord has taken upon himself in order that we might be saved from that suffering by his suffering. A tremendous and an amazing thing. And by that suffering, of course, also, we can, we can read various uh, interpretations into, into, into these words, we also, is it not true, if we, we don't actually feel that God has disappeared from us completely, and, in, and indeed, we can say that the words of our blessed Lord are not at all a cry of despair. They're a cry of confidence, in spite of having lost the, the, pre, the feeling of the presence of God, that he still calls upon God. He still calls, my, the very words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, assumes that there is a God to hear the words and, and, and to act upon them. The utter despair is the despair of the atheist. He's got nobody to call on at all. Nothingness, nothingness. Why have you abandoned me? The ultimate despair is to be left alone. Our Lord, by accepting this punishment, also takes upon himself the greatest, the greatest punishment in this world which is to be left alone. To be, there's almost no suffering, I think, that we might not be, even the worst things that we could ever possibly imagine happening to ourselves in our wildest and most dreadful imaginations, which aren't mitigated by the fact that we might be in the presence of somebody else, we might be in the company of somebody else. That in itself makes any terror less. The worst thing that anybody can suffer is to be totally and completely abandoned. That's why, for example, I think when the prisoners in jail, that the worst, apparently the worst torment is to be put into solitary confinement. Now, I personally, I've never been to jail, but I probably, I, I think it would be rather nice to be in solitary confinement rather than be with all the savages who are in jail. And it, it, that's the idea. But once it's prolonged, 
It's worse than being beaten or ill-treated or whipped or scourged or anything like that. Because you eventually go insane. And you eventually go insane because God has not made us to be alone. He himself said it. It's not good for man to be alone. And if you're left completely alone, dire consequences come. There's almost nothing which we cannot face in solidarity with others. So again, our Lord experiences this complete abandonment of all consolation, obviously from his heavenly Father, but also from everything else around him now. He's now become detached and into himself, withdrawn into himself. And even in our own spiritual lives, does it not often happen? It's a lesson to us too. Don't we sometimes feel that God has abandoned us? I mean, we know he's not abandoned us, but sometimes we feel he's abandoned us. Our spiritual lives are empty, meaningless. We go through all the routine. It doesn't make any difference to us. We don't feel very holy. We don't feel that God's particularly near us. We say our prayers. Nothing happens. It doesn't make any difference to anything. And we feel as though, well, God's abandoned us, or he's not there, or maybe it's not all at all worthwhile. These, are, what, these, the, 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 these cry of our blessed Lord is meant to give us likewise encouragement in these dark moments. And also, of course, to, see, to, to put us in the same dispositions of our Lord, that our Lord accomplished the will of his Father without seeking and without receiving any consolation. I mean, it's a stupid thing to say, for example, or to think that I don't feel holy. Well, why should you feel holy? I mean, being holy, being holy has got nothing to do with feeling anything at all. And in fact, if we were to feel holy, and so take this as a warning, any of you who do happen to feel holy, it's almost a sure indication that you are not holy at all. It's just a figment of imagination, because there's no such thing as feeling holy. Holy is a state, holiness is a state which is beyond sensibility and the uh, and uh, feelings it's something far more profound than that so we again these these words of our lord have got a profound and a, a, a amazing uh, application to ourselves and also it's an indication that we should our lord complains in his desolation it's a complaint my god my god why hast thou forsaken me it's a complaint that should be addressed to God and not to others. We should take our troubles to God. How often do we not take our troubles to God? We take our troubles to, to somebody else or to, or, or to something, something else. So these words also have got a profound significance to us. And I think they've got an even profounder significance by the fact that in reality, God abandons nobody. And if we feel that God has abandoned us, is it not the case very often that the fault is entirely our own? What do I mean by that? Is it not because the state that we have put our soul into makes, we've removed ourselves so far from God that we feel, because we are so selfish and we always, we're never to blame for anything, that we feel it's God's fault. 
when in fact we are the ones who have withdrawn. Instead of complaining to God and saying to God, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Would it not be, in fact, more appropriate to say, my God, my God, why have I forsaken thee? Because it's by forsaking him that we feel, we only feel, it's only our feelings and our imagination that we are forsaken by him. But we are never forsaken by him. We cannot be forsaken by him. It's only our own ill will which prevents the union which Almighty God wishes to have with us. And finally, this is final, speaking of ill will, the ill will of those who heard these words. They heard these words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken thee? And they cried out, this man calleth for Elias. Eli, Eli, they deliberately did not listen to what our Lord was saying. And they took these words, they deliberately twisted the words, because it was very convenient for them to say this, because Elias was to be, Elias was the, the, uh, the patron of the Jews in extreme cases of trouble. And also Elias was he who was going to be the forerunner, the precursor of the Messiah. So clearly, if this man was in such a state of desolation that he was calling for Elias, and also that when he was calling for Elias on the point of his death, he couldn't possibly be the Messiah. He couldn't possibly be the great man that he was claiming to be. They deliberately twisted these words. And when I say deliberately twisted these words, I mean deliberately twisted these words because these words are not our Lord's words as such. They are the beginning of Psalm 21. They are the first verse of Psalm 21. And when the pious Jews heard these words, and particularly when the high priests heard these words, this is one of our Lord's last appeals to the Jews to recognize the, him as their Messiah, that our Lord not only fulfilled the prophecies, it's a very interesting thing, now our Lord not only fulfilled the prophecies in the things that he did, in the things that he taught, but he very often spoke, when he spoke, the words which he used were words from the Old Testament, from the Holy Scriptures. And he only shouts out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And by saying these words, he says a psalm which all the priests would have known, like any Catholic priest would know. The Catholic priests say their breviary every week and they say, recite the whole 150 psalms a week. The Jewish priests in the temple sang the psalms also every week. And they had a better memory than we do because, of course, in the days before printing and the days before books were commonplace, the only recourse that you had to know anything was to memorize it. And of course the Psalms are in meter, they're in poetry, and they're sung, and therefore become easy, easy to learn when you've been singing them when you've been singing them for years. And our Lord, when when these high priests deliberately, quite deliberately, chose not to take the meaning which our Lord gave to these words, because these words are the opening 
words of Psalm 21, which finally, for the last thing this evening, I wish to read to you. Because Psalm 21 is the greatest of the Messianic Psalms. It's a startling, as you will see, it's a startling prophecy of our Lord's passion and death, written 1,000 years before, if you please, by King David, sung and recited by the Jews for 1,000 years, and they understood it to be a prophecy of the Messiah. It, of course, was written from our point of view now, 3,000 years ago. So inevitably, its language is to do with the, uh, with the world as it was 2,000 years ago, and it's got lots of references to farm animals and all this kind of thing in it, which would have been familiar to the people then, not so to us. But even so, it's startling and remarkable. And it's interesting because our Lord, when during the silence, these long silence of three hours, was presumably reciting the Psalms because two of the next words that we're going to consider tomorrow are also quotations from the Psalms. And the whole worship of the church, our Lord was dying on the cross and reciting the Psalms and the whole worship of the Catholic Church is the sacrifice of the Mass and the singing of the Psalms. Our Lord's mystical body continues the same prayer as he did on the cross. Wonderful, isn't it? So this is a psalm which explains the abandonment of the Messiah, the sufferings which he was, go, was to undergo, the curse upon the people who, 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 have, who have caused these sufferings, and ends up on an optimistic note that in the end, everybody will be converted. And the new people, the people who have persecuted him, everybody in the end will be converted, and a new people the church of God will be established. So, if you're, I mean, you may well know Psalm 21 very, very well, but if you don't, I'm sure even the dullest of us will be able to see images of our Lord's passion in it. O God, my God, look upon me. Why hast thou forsaken me? Far from my salvation are the words of my sins. Our Lord, of course, has taken on our sins, not committed sin. O oh my God, I shall cry by day, and thou wilt not hear, and by night, and it will not be reputed as folly in me. But thou dwellest in the holy place, the praise of Israel. In thee have our fathers hoped, they have hoped, and thou hast delivered them. They cried to thee, and they were saved. They trusted in thee, and were not confounded. But I am a worm, and no man, the reproach of men, and the outcast of the people. All they that saw me have laughed me to scorn. They have spoken with the lips and wagged the head. He hoped in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him save him, seeing that he delighteth in him. For thou art he that hast drawn me out of the womb, my hope from the breaths of my mother. I was cast upon thee from the womb. From my mother's womb thou art my God, depart not from me. For tribulation is very near, for there is none to help me. Many calves have surrounded me, fat bulls have besieged me. They have opened their mouths against me, as a lion ravening and, and roaring. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are scattered. My heart has become like wax, melting in the midst of my bowels.
My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue hath cleaved to my jaws, and thou hast brought me down into the dust of death. For many dogs have encompassed me, the counsel of the malignant have besieged me. They have dug my hands and feet, they have numbered all my bones, and they have looked and stared upon me. They parted my garments amongst them, and upon my vesture they cast lots. But thou, O Lord, remove not thy help to a distance from me, look towards my defence. Deliver, O God, my soul from the sword, my only one from the hand of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, and my lowness from the horns of the unicorns. I will declare thy name to thy, my brethren, in the midst of the church will I praise thee. Ye that fear the Lord, praise him. All ye, the seed of Jacob, glorify him. Let all the seed of Israel fear him, because he hath not slighted nor despised the supplication of the poor man. Neither hath he turned away his face from me, and when I cried to him, he heard me. With thee is my praise in a great church. I will pay my vows in the sight of them that fear him. The poor shall eat and shall be filled, and they shall praise the Lord that seek him. Their hearts shall live for ever and ever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and shall be converted to the Lord, and all the kindreds of the Gentiles shall adore in his sight. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he shall have dominion over the nations. All the fat ones of the earth have eaten and have adored. All they that go down to the earth shall fall before him. And to him my soul shall live, and my seed shall serve him. There shall be declared to the Lord a generation to come, and the heavens shall show forth his justice to a people that shall be born, which the Lord hath made. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Lord, have mercy on us. Christ, have mercy on us. Lord, have mercy on us. Christ, hear us. God, the Father of heaven. God, the Son, Redeemer of the world. God, the Holy Ghost. Holy Trinity, one God. Jesus, eternal wisdom. Jesus, sold for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus, prostrate on the ground in prayer. Jesus, strengthened by an angel. Jesus, in thine agony, bathed in a bloody sweat. Jesus, betrayed by Judas with a kiss. Jesus, bound by the soldiers. Jesus, forsaken by thy disciples. Jesus, brought before Annas and Caiaphas. Jesus, struck in the face by a servant. Jesus, accused by false witnesses. Jesus, declared guilty of death. Jesus, spat upon. Jesus, blindfolded. Jesus, smitten on the cheek. Jesus thrice denied by Peter. Jesus delivered up to Pilate. Jesus despised and mocked by Herod. Jesus clothed in a white garment. Jesus rejected for Barabbas. Jesus torn with scourges. Jesus bruised for our sins. Jesus esteemed a leper. Jesus covered with a purple robe. Jesus crowned with thorns. Jesus struck with a reed upon the head. 
Jesus demanded for crucifixion by the Jews. Jesus condemned to an ignominious death. Jesus given up to the will of thine enemies. Jesus loaded with the heavy weight of the cross. Jesus laid like a sheep to the slaughter. Jesus stripped of thy garments. Jesus fastened with nails to the cross. Jesus reviled by the malefactors. Jesus promising paradise to the penitent thief. Jesus commending St. John to thy mother as a son. Jesus declaring thyself forsaken by thy father. Jesus in thy thirst given gall and vinegar to drink. Jesus testifying that all things written concerning thee were accomplished. Jesus commending thy spirit into the hands of thy father. Jesus obedient even to the death of the cross. Jesus pierced with a lance. Jesus made a propitiation for us. Jesus taken down from the cross. Jesus laid in the sepulchre. Jesus rising gloriously from the dead. Jesus ascending into heaven. Jesus our advocate with the Father. Jesus sending down on thy disciples the Holy Ghost, the Paraclete. Jesus exalting thy mother above the choirs of angels. Jesus who shall come to judge the living and the dead. Be merciful. Spare us, O Jesus. Lamb of God, who takest away the sins of the world. Lamb of God, who takest away the sins of the world. Lamb of God, who takest away the sins of the world. Christ, hear us. We adore thee, O Christ, and we praise thee. Let us pray, Almighty and Eternal God, who has appointed thine only begotten Son, the Saviour of the world, and his will to be appeased with his blood, grant that we may so venerate this prize of our salvation, and by its might be so defended upon earth from the evils of this present life, that in heaven we may rejoice in its everlasting fruit, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the unity of the Holy Ghost, world without end. My Lord Jesus Christ, who to redeem the world is vouchsafed to be born amongst men, to be circumcised, to be rejected and persecuted by the Jews, to be betrayed by the traitor Judas with a kiss, and as a lamb gentle and innocent, to be bound with cords and dragged in scorn before the tribunals of Annas, Caiaphas, Pilate, and Herod, who didst suffer thyself to be accused by false witnesses, to be torn by the scourge and overwhelmed with opprobrium, to be spat upon, to be crowned with thorns, buffeted, struck with a reed, blindfolded, stripped of thy garments, to be nailed to the cross and raised on it between two thieves, to be given gall and vinegar to drink, and to be pierced with a lance, do thou, O Lord, by these thy most sacred pains, which I all unworthy call to mind, and by thy holy cross and death, save me from the pains of hell, and vouchsafe to bring me whither thou didst bring the good thief who was crucified with thee, who with the Father and the Holy Ghost livest and reignest God for ever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.